as you know, the Dead Poet Society is one of the best films that has ever been made. One of them, I'm not saying it's the best, but it's one of my favorites as well. And Robin Williams plays the eccentric Professor Keating, who is a new professor of English at this boys' school. And I feel like this is one of Robin Williams' best and most brilliant performances. And on the first day of class, he walks in and he invites his students to come out into the hallway and to bring their textbooks with them. And as they're standing there in the hallway, he invites one of the students to open up to a certain page and to read the poem called To the Virgins to Make Much of Time. And this is how that poem began. Gather the rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a-flying. And this same smile that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. Students are looking around rather nervously, wondering what the point of this is. And Professor Keating goes on to explain, gather the rosebuds while, we, while ye may. The Latin phrase for that is carpe diem, seize the day. Gather the rosebuds while ye may. And then he asks this question, what is the, why does the poet write these lines? Because we are food for worms, lads. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. Well, with that splash of cold water in their face, he invites them to step up to the trophy case and to look at the displays of achievements of past uh, classes. And he invites them to, to dial in on the pictures of a bygone era and to look at these previous classmates in the face. And he says to this, he says to them this, they are not that different than any of you, are they? Same haircuts, full of hormones just like you, invincible just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe that they are destined for great things just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go ahead, lean in, hear it. And then Professor Keating whispers, carpe, carpe, carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. And then the film cuts to the boys leaving the class, and I think one of them said, that was weird. <laughs> and indeed it was. But what Professor Keating is wanting to do is to awaken these boys to the opportunity that is set before them, to not waste their lives, but rather to seize the day. And his invitation to them is to not live an ordinary life, but an extraordinary life. And so many people find this inspiring. But what happens if we don't lead extraordinary lives? What if our lives are just ordinary? Oftentimes, extraordinary lives are beyond circumstances that are presented to us. Sometimes that is offered. But what's interesting is that when we begin to follow Christ, we learn that he too wants us to seize the day, but not to make our lives extraordinary, but rather to highlight his extraordinary life. Let me say that again. When we begin to follow Christ, we learn that he too wants us to seize the day, but not to make our lives extraordinary, but rather to highlight 
to give testimony to, to invite others to consider his extraordinary life. And the reason for that is because nothing less than the salvation of the world is at stake. And so we're going to call our study today the greatness of the Great Commission. And we're going to look at some of the most famous words or instructions of Jesus given to his disciples as he gets ready to launch them into the world to be his representatives. And so as we get ready to consider these well-known words, um, for some of us they can be very familiar. For some of us they may be new and fresh. Uh, however we encounter them together, let's, let's listen to them as if they were for the first time. And so let's just pause for a moment and pray and ask the Lord to teach us through these words and to reveal his will for us. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about what it means to live our lives and to seize the day and to make the most of every opportunity, would you give us ears to hear what Jesus wants to say to us? how he wants us to seize the day, how he wants us to live in light of his extraordinary life. And as we do, we pray, Lord, that you would surprise us afresh and anew, that you would inspire us, that you would encourage us to believe that you want to use just ordinary people like us to highlight the extraordinary life of Jesus. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about some of the core values of Mercy Hill Church and refocusing our minds upon what we want to be a part of as Mercy Hill Church. And so we spent a couple weeks looking at the gospel of Jesus and how the heart of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose again, that he appeared to many witnesses, over 500 at one time. And we saw how that gospel, that good news of Jesus, forms communities of Jesus all over the world. And these communities are devoted to one another. They learn to love one another as Jesus has loved them. And now this week we're going to take another step to see how the gospel of Jesus informing this community of Jesus does so for the mission of Jesus. In other words, these communities of Jesus exist for his mission in this world. And so I want to invite you to listen in as we hear Jesus speaking some of his last words to his disciples, as recorded for us by Matthew the Evangelist. Matthew 28, verse 16. This is what we're told. This is post-resurrection of Jesus, right? Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So there are now 11 of Jesus' close disciples. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, had ended his own life. And Jesus has appeared already to his disciples. And he gave them instructions to go to Galilee, and he would meet them there. And we're told by Matthew that when they saw him, some of them worshipped Jesus. Can you imagine what that must have been like in that moment? To see these men who, who at one point saw Jesus crucified who had heard of the, the brutal torture that he faced. And then Jesus has appeared to them and now has appeared to them again. I don't know about you, but if I was there, I'd want to fall at Jesus' feet. And we're told here that some doubted, which is interesting. How do we understand that? Or it could be that some of them no longer believed in Jesus or wavered in that. I'm not sure that's exactly what Matthew is saying. It might be he's saying no more that some of them just couldn't believe their eyes. I mean, here is Jesus. And he's appearing before you. And Jesus says to them, 
He came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, if you've been around Christian circles or you follow the teachings of Jesus, you know that this is just a Jesus kind of thing to say. It doesn't really surprise us. But let's just say that my friend Kenny, for example, walks in the room today and he, in the middle of worship, he just says, hey, everyone, just can I have your attention for a moment? I just want to let you guys know that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. <laughs> I just claimed that, right? When people say things like that, we know that they're either power hungry or they have lost their marbles. But Jesus said this, and he was deadly serious. And as we consider what he's saying here, I just want to point out a handful of things that, that make this great commission great. And the first one is he talks about all authority in heaven and earth being given to him. To understand that, we need to remind ourselves of the four-part story of the gospel that begins in creation when God created Adam and Eve as brand new human beings and set them up to be kings and queens, to rule with him, to spread his kingdom over the face of this world. But as the story unfolds, we see them turning their backs upon God, joining the evil one in his rebellion. And so God promised that one day he would send someone to crush the head of that evil one, and to restore the goodness of God's creation. So in time, God sent Jesus to live the life that you and I are called to live, a life of perfect love and obedience to the Father, and to die the death that we owe. And so in this redemption, Jesus fulfilled what God had called the people of Israel to do, to be a light to the nations, to invite the world to experience salvation and what he now entrusts the church to do. And so in time, there'll be what's called the great restoration. What Jesus talked about is the new heavens and new earth. And so what Adam and Eve forfeited because of their rebellion, Jesus has now secured. So just like they had been given authority in heaven and earth to spread God's kingdom, to join in partnership with God, that has been now given to Jesus. It's interesting, in the book of Psalms, there's this psalm in Psalm chapter 2, and it's known as a coronation psalm. When each king of Israel is sent to the throne, this would be one of the songs that they would sing. And in this, God is saying to the king, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God intended for there to be a ruler who would be able to draw the nations in and to rule in justice and in righteousness. But what's interesting, with every king that ascended the throne in ancient Israel, none of them secured this promise. In fact, Israel, as a nation, went off the rails more and more and more until eventually it just became like one of the other nations. The Apostle Paul, though, picks up on this theme of Jesus being given authority in his, what's probably his magnum opus in the book of Romans, he begins his book like this. And just follow along with me. It's, it's a long run on sentence. But see if you can track what he's saying. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power, 
by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Apostle Paul, who at one point was an enemy of Jesus in his movement, who became a believer after he met the resurrected Jesus, began to understand exactly the implications of that resurrection. And he says here that Jesus was appointed by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness. Jesus was appointed to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul saw the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus as the enthronement of Jesus. And this is important because there's someone else going around at that point in time saying that they were the Son of God. There's someone else going around claiming to be the Lord. Octavian, otherwise known as Caesar Augustus, who reigned at the birth of Jesus, had his father declared to be divine, to be a God. And so he became known as the Son of God. And he appropriated the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords to himself. He was called the Savior of the world. And all the emperors who, who followed in his wake took these titles to themselves as well. But what's interesting is that the early followers of Jesus went around basically saying, in effect, Caesar is an imposter. He is not the true king. There is another king. This is how the book of Acts describes it. Uh, the, the apostles were going around proclaiming this message of Jesus as Lord. And people were talking about them like this. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now this is loaded language. For anyone to be going around the Roman Empire saying there's another king, you see, Rome had a way of dealing with rebels and those who challenged its power. And they were brutal about it. They nailed people to the cross. And so Jesus, having commissioned his disciples in this Roman Empire to go to call the nations to himself, knows he's sending them out in an environment that is fraught with danger. But they did go around. For example, the Apostle John in his book of Revelation, described Jesus as the king of kings, lord of lords. Abraham Kuyper, the well-known prime minister of the Netherlands, understood the implications of Jesus being given all authority and power. And he put it like this. There is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine. This belongs to me. See, my friends, when we hear Jesus saying all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, we need to understand that he is reclaiming this fallen and lost creation to himself. But he doesn't do it with the edge of the sword. He doesn't do it by exercising power in a brutal way. His modus operandi is entirely different. I love the way William Blake, the poet, put it. He said, the glory of Christianity is to conquer by forgiveness. That's how Jesus conquered my rebel heart. When I understood that my, my sins, my waywardness, my insistence on living life my own way separated me from God, but that Jesus offered forgiveness to someone like me, he conquered my heart. <laughs> he won it. 
Napoleon Bonaparte understood this. He put it like this. He says, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire on love. And at this hour, millions of men and women would die for him. You see, Jesus gained power by giving it up. We learn from the Apostle Paul that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is more, no more powerless place to be than when the brute of Roman authority nails you to the cross. You have no more power. Your life is expiring in an excruciating way. But Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus received power and authority by giving it up. And so, because of that, he gives his disciples some instructions. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I've highlighted that central phrase there, make disciples. In the original language, that is the imperative of the sentence. That's the main verb. And there's three other accompanying verbs that are what are called, I don't want to bore you with this, but participles, ing verbs. (laughs) Make disciples is the central command. And to do that by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. The International Standard Version tried to get at the force of making disciple the main verb here by putting it like this. Therefore, as you go, make disciples of people in all nations or disciple people in all nations. So what is a disciple? A disciple is one who learns the teachings of their master and lives according to those teachings. They literally follow in the steps of their master. That's what these original disciples did for three years. Jesus lived with them. He taught them. He loved them. He forgave them. He encouraged them. He inspired them. And he called them to follow him. And so Jesus says to make disciples of all nations. And that leads us to the second great all here. All nations are to be discipled. Did you see that? Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, when we think of nations, we think of our modern nation states, right? And that wasn't really what people understood back in the day. There were a few empires, but but the world was scattered about into different people groups. In fact, the original word in the Greek language for nations is this word ethnos, from which we get the word ethnicity. It can describe a tribe, a nation, or a people group. 
or ethnic groups bound together by various customs. And so you could think of a nation like the United States of America and think of the different tribes that we have in this nation or how people are grouped together around their various ethnicities or common interests. The book of Revelation picks up this note by telling us that gathered around the throne are people praising Jesus, saying, you are slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. All kinds of folks Jesus has redeemed. So Jesus also says, in addition to making disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We looked last week just briefly about how God exists in this eternal community of love, one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how this just blows our categories. It's, it's, it's impossible to get our heads around, although we're taught in Scripture to understand God this way. One God in three persons, what we call the Blessed Trinity. And so Jesus says, I want you to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why is this important? Because baptism is a sacrament. Sacrament is just one of those fancy words that means a holy mystery. Baptism is a holy mystery given by Christ to his church to signify to us the cleansing of sins made possible by the shedding of his blood. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That is, we're called to, to draw near to God with a true heart and sure, in, in, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What does that mean? When we come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we grab hold of that promise of forgiveness, the blood of Jesus clean, uh, cleanses our hearts. It's sprinkled clean with the blood of Jesus from an evil conscience. And our bodies are washed with pure water. When was your body washed with pure water? It was at your baptism. And that baptism is meant to signify to you the cleansing of sins. And so, do you remember that time when we had opportunity to baptize six folks? It was so fun and so amazing. Here's a picture of Palmy. Do you remember this, Palmy? What a wonderful day. And in this... Uh, baptism, we, we immersed folks and we sprinkled folks. And I immersed Palmy and I baptized her in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I took the waters and I poured them over her head and said to Palmy something to this effect. I said, let this, these waters of baptism be to you a sign of God's love, of the forgiveness of sins that is available to all who believe in Christ and of his continual pursuit of you. So Jesus wants us to not just simply make disciples, but to make disciples who wear this sign of baptism, who have undergone these cleansing waters that preach the message of Jesus. Now, sometimes Christians will say, baptism is my declaration that I want to follow Jesus. And that might be the case. And I think that is indeed the case in some ways. But the primary person who is speaking in baptism is God himself, saying that all who believe experience the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
This leads us to the third great awe. All that I have taught you, you teach to others. This is why the Apostle Paul, in his opening salvo in the book of Romans, said this. Through him we have received grace and apostleship. Apostleship just is a, is a word that means someone who has sent. An apostle is someone who has sent. So he says, we have received grace and we are sent to call all the nations to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. So what is Paul saying here? He's not saying, he's, he's saying not simply that we want to make people believers in Jesus, but we want to make them disciples of Jesus and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has taught. That's what disciples are supposed to do, to follow Jesus, to live the way, new way of being human that he teaches us. I do think it's interesting that one of the most telling things about our time is that there are many fans of Jesus. But we have to ask the question, are they his disciples, though? It's not uncommon to see celebrities with a, a Jesus tattoo or, or seeing a T-shirt worn by someone famous saying, Jesus is my homeboy. It's kind of cool to recognize that Jesus is a major influencer in the world who taught people to love. But are these fans actually followers of Jesus? Are they disciples? And the reason I ask this is because there was a time when Jesus said to those who followed him, to those who said they were his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? With anger and rage, he calls us to respond instead with kindness and patience and love. He invites us into a new way of being human. And he, he's serious. He, he really does want us to follow him as his students. And so this leads us to another part I want to highlight from this text. Another part of the greatness of this great commission is the promise that all of our days, Jesus will be with us. He says in verse 20, behold, in other words, pay attention. Listen closely to what I'm saying. I am with you always to the end of the age. Another day, in other words, there's not a day that will go by that I am not with you. And I want you to, to buy into this and to believe this, to be encouraged by this. Again, the author of Hebrews gives us encouragement in this, writing this. He said, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How many times has that promise encouraged me in some of my darkest days? When my feelings felt like God had left me. To be able to lean into this promise. To not believe my feelings, but to believe him. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There's actually one more bonus all that I want to highlight here. All of his disciples are included in this promise. It's, when we read this, it says, I am with you always. That word you in the original language is plural. If there was a Texan translation, it would say, I am with y'all always. I wonder if Jesus didn't say that slowly, looking in the eyes of each one of these 11 people. I am with you 
each and every one of you, always, even to the end of the age. (laughs) How encouraging must it have been to hear those words and to remember those words through some, some of the difficult days that were ahead. So let's apply this in just a few ways as we think about this. Number one, how do we respond to these words of Jesus? I think the first and most obvious is to hail him as our matchless king throughout eternity. And of course, I'm lifting those words from that opening hymn that we sung today, crown him with many crowns. If all authority in heaven and earth has been given to King Jesus, then we ought to hail him as our matchless king. To to give him the authority and reign of our lives. To say to Jesus, I want to follow you all the days of my life. There's a hymn that was popular not too long ago that had this line in it. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? How do we respond to the matchless love of Jesus that was willing to go to the cross to rescue people like you and me? We don't try and pay him back. That's impossible. We can't pay him. Everything we've been given is a gift from him, even the breath in our lungs. But we can respond in gratefulness and say to him, Lord, I will follow you all the days of my life, and I will hail you as my matchless king. So secondly, here's another practical way that we can apply this teaching to our lives. And that is simply to see ourselves as a disciple of King Jesus. And to let this be the true identity we understand ourselves by. Who are you? There's a number of ways you can answer that question. But first and foremost, I hope that you would say, I am a disciple of King Jesus. I wonder how things would change if, if we really understood that, and if we really believed that. When we get up in the morning to be able to say, no matter what this day brings, I am a disciple of King Jesus, and I want to live the way he teaches me to live. <laughs> There's this wonderful place where Jesus tells his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. This obviously is applied to his original 11 disciples. You remember, he went and tapped some people on their shoulders and said, hey, I want you to follow me. But you know what? That's still how Jesus calls disciples to himself. You did not choose me, he says, to all of us, but I chose you. Your choice of me is because I have already chosen you. And not only that, but I've appointed you, that you should bear fruit. And so when we begin to understand it, begin to live into that, I think basically, what do we say? But other than your wish is my command. King Jesus, you have won me to yourself. You have loved me and given yourself for me. Therefore, your wish is my command. How do you want me to live? How do you want me to handle this situation? Lord, your wish is my command. And so maybe, my friends, a practical implication of this seeing ourselves as disciples of Jesus who want us to bear fruit, is just to get clear on the message of the gospel itself. And the reason I say this is because I I think a lot of Christians, if they were asked the question, what is the gospel of Jesus, feel like, okay, I I need to know this, but, but words escape. 
I'll never forget the time when my wife and I were serving as assessors at a church planning center in Atlanta. And this is a place where, where people who want to church, plant churches are, are evaluated and assessed on a number of different fronts. And I was with this other gentleman, and we had a couple who was being assessed, and we were doing an interview with them. And this interview was about evangelism and about telling other people the good news of Jesus. And so this man who wanted to be a church planter was asked, how would you explain the gospel? And he just kind of started backpedaling. He's like, um, um, well, I, I, would, I would tell people to just, you know, to believe in God and to love others. And it's not that that's wrong, but it's, it's woefully incomplete. The gospel is not about what you do, but it's about what God has done. And so the guy who was taking the lead in this interview just asked him several times. And, and at one point, with this man who wanted to plant churches, couldn't articulate the gospel. He just said to him, okay, let's pretend that we're in an airplane and we're going down. And I turn to you and say, what must I do to be saved? What would you say? And this man who was a pastor just gave a general answer of just believe in God. How would you answer that question? C. Peter Wagner said, all Christians at all times should be prepared for that moment when God brings them into contact with a person prepared by the Holy Spirit for trusting Christ. And so my friends, if you're not clear on what you would say in that, pick up one of those little booklets we have on the table out there, Two Ways to Live, and just work through that and get clear in your mind because Jesus wants to use you to tell others about him. So if someone asks us, let's be ready. John Dixon, in his book called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, said this. He said, the best kept secret of Christian mission is that the Bible lists the whole range of activities that promote Christ to the world and draws others to him. And this is actually encouraging because oftentimes we think, well, if, if we're not a Billy Graham, if we can't just stand up and, and preach to a bunch of people who are strangers and have folks respond, then therefore God can't use me. But nothing could be further from the truth. John Dixon lists a number of ways here that we can all promote Jesus. One of them is by prayer, by praying for people that they would come to know the Lord Jesus. Another way is by financial partnerships, both with your local church and with people who are missionaries in other places to be able to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus. By adorning the gospel, what does that mean? By simply living as a follower of Jesus. For people to be able to say, there's something different about you. I can't quite put my finger on it, but, but you're not like other folks. What's, what's going on? Another way is by just learning to answer questions, to think through good responses to questions people have. In fact, we're encouraged that when people ask us questions, that we should be ready. And so to grow as a disciple of Jesus and learning how to answer questions in our daily conversation. That's one of the reasons we're doing this book study and, and tactics, is to learn how to, to have conversations that are both natural and that are opening the door to, to deeper conversations. And then in public worship, he says this is another way that we promote the gospel to the world. See, when we gather together in worship, to be able to sing as if we believe it, 
So that when people are in our midst who don't yet know Jesus, they can go, wow, there's something different. Let me tell you, one of the interesting things is when we first moved back here to Bryan College Station, my family and I went to various churches in town. And we went to, to some large churches, we went to some small churches, but it was really interesting. I remember going to this, to this large church in our community, and people were stood up to worship. And I looked around, and there weren't even 20% of people singing. And I wondered, I was like, do these people believe what's being done up on stage? They had a stage full of singers? Or are they just there being entertained? I just had that question. And I thought, if someone walked in here, they would wonder, has Jesus captured these people's hearts? And so we have an opportunity when we get together to sing, <laughs> to sing like we believe it. And my friends, I, I, I don't have a great voice. I, I know that. That's why I sit in the very front. That's why I like having people like Jackson behind me who have great voices, and I can just let his voice encompass mine, and it helps make it sound better. But I hope that people could look at me and say, you know what? I think that guy believes what he's saying. My friends, open yourself up to the possibilities of being used by Jesus to advance his mission. Because God doesn't ask about our ability or inability, but only about our availability. So ask yourself this question. What would it look like for me to engage in the mission of Jesus? If it's true that Jesus wants to use me to help others understand and know him, then what would that look like for me? Don't settle for the lie that God could never use you or he doesn't want to use you? Of course he does. And there's a number of different ways he can use us. In just a few moments, we're going to sing the song, All I Have is Christ. And it has this wonderful line. In fact, my friend Jerry texted me this line last night. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Ever since... I've, I first heard this song. This line has captured me. And I try to make it a daily prayer of my life. I'm going to ask you to respond in just a few moments by singing this song and to make it a prayer in your life. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. He used Billy Graham differently than he used the Apostle Andrew. And he used many countless people who the world has forgotten in many exciting ways to highlight Jesus. And he wants to use your life and my life as well. So, so I wonder, how, how might our lives be different if you and I, those of us who follow Jesus, made this our daily prayer? You see, when we step out and trust, when we ask God to use us and he sets opportunities before us, that's where the magic happens. But it always happens outside our comfort zones. To say, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. To highlight the extraordinary life of Jesus. He's going he's to push us out of our comfort zones. But I think we just need to embrace that. And to be able to say, Lord, enable me to move out of my comfort zones for the sake of your kingdom. So let's finish where we began that movie, Dead Poet Society. There's this place which Professor Keating gathers his students around, and he reads a poem by the patron saint of the classroom, Walt Whitman. It's a poem called, O Me, O Life. And this is what Professor Keating recited. O me, O life, of the questions of these recurring, 
of the endless strains, or trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish. What good amid these, O me, O life? The answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. And then he repeats the line and asks a question, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? So my friends, may we all be able to say, I am a disciple of Jesus, and by his grace, I get to contribute my verse, my part of the play, to this great play, this great story is about Jesus and his glory. So Mercy Hill Church, may you use your ordinary life to highlight the extraordinary life of Jesus, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, and the friend of sinners.